Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Hey everybody, Doc Bryan here. We have been told this lie all of our lives, and it is this, perception is reality, and it's not. Now we could say, yes, perception, your perception is your reality, or my perception is my reality, but it's not the same for all of us. That's why there's three sides to every story. There's your side, there's my side, and somewhere in between is what actually took place. So don't try to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Don't try to look at life the way that they look at life. Just love them where they're at, and the world will be a better place. Hey everybody, Doc Bryan here, and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. Uh, today I have with me Robert Forstein. Did I say that right? For Forstein. 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 Okay. And he's the author of his latest book, Living in My Afterlife, titled An Invisible Disability and Health Odyssey Affecting Millions. Robert, it's good to have you with us today on Doc Talks. Thank you for having me. So uh, just, you know, in looking at, at your book and having spoke just a little bit, you suffer from what is known as the invisible disease. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that disease, what it, what it is? The invisible disease is called dysautonomia. As wide as you can imagine, there's 70 million people who are affected by it. And I have full body neuropathy. So it's an autoimmune disease, autonomic autoimmune neuropathy. I have it from my toes to my neck and then some mental issues of like executive processing and things like that, remembering. But dysautonomia, I feel like I'm with this thought, with mine, because everybody gets it in a different way. When you can have a component of blood pressure and heartbeat and other involuntary, your gut is involuntary, your digestive system, whether you're constipated, whether you got loose bowels, it's all part of dysautonomia, but everybody can have a different, like, like IBS would be falling into that category. What I have now is like I'm in a cage or a metal medieval, you know, or a jousting suit. And it's 24-7. The hands are starting to shake and more. Is that they're numb. My body is numb. When my hands are under the covers, I can't tell whether they're under the covers or out of the covers or what I'm feeling for or feeling anything. Sex becomes an issue. That's involuntary. The appetite sometimes gets affected. You smell funny things. There are groups on, online for dysautonomia or specific illnesses. I wrote a book about my whole experience once we developed the dysautonomia and by the way, I went into a hospital admitted with liver failure, and then the dysautonomia came on with it completely full-blown, and now it's still progressing. It's in the MS uh, area. It's in the Parkinson's area, neuromuscular neurological issues. The book is about a whole story of what happened, when, how I got the disease or the illness. I went in from a 
misdiagnosis on what medication would work, really an abuse of the medication, which was Augmentin. You're not supposed to take it as much as it was prescribed for me. So it was affecting my liver. That was the tip off. I was turning yellow, dragging my ass. So went to the hospital, was finally relocated to a liver hospital, transplant. I was a candidate for a transplant two days away, they said. So they get me in the hospital and they start giving me some medication. And believe it or not, the numbers called the Billy Rubin numbers went down. So over time, the liver cured itself. That became a non-issue. But the neuropathy progressed with all the other symptoms. And I think, unfortunately, they confused the error in the medication with my illness. And one may have caused the other, but not the other causing the one. It's idiopathic what they're saying. They don't know mm-hmm. where it's coming or what happened. But we cleaned up the liver issue. And then I spent three months in a hospital. And then another couple of years later, I'm going to Mayo Clinic uh, looking for results. And there are none. You know, as we age, we develop certain symptoms and certain issues just naturally. So I finally got it diagnosed by the NYU Dysautonomia Center. And now I know what I'm dealing with. So is dysautonomia, is it a diagnosis by exclusion or is there an actual some kind of test that proves that that is the issue? Well, I believe the tilt table test and some blood work, if you're focusing on that, you'll come to an answer a lot faster because they test your heart rate recovery, your blood pressure recovery from either up or down mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of, a bunch of other things. Uh, you know, they tell you to count backwards by sevens from 33,624, <laughs> now take another seven off. I don't you know, know you, that I could do that. You could do that if you just think about it, but at some point you say, all right, enough of performing these tricks. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I just went here to Dr. Google, and, and it says how to fix dysautonomia, and it says, number one, to drink more water, add more salt to your diet, sleeping with your head raised, and taking steroids. And so as somebody with a PhD looking at that, I'm going, those are all things that are that are just kind of palliative care to make somebody feel like there's something that may be helping. You got it. That's what it is. Oh, sure. Yeah. So getting to the mental health side of this, knowing that there is no cure and knowing that there probably isn't much you know, because people think about nerve pain and they think about pain medicine. Well, pain medicine really does not manage nerve pain. So when we get to the understanding that, okay, this is this is my diagnosis. Uh, this is how I'm going to live, and it's going to get worse over time. I could only imagine that the depression has started way before the diagnosis of dysautonomia has been made. Would that be a fair statement? Yes, it could be. I kind of know I was depressed because when my conclusion, you know, when my answers were starting to come into me with my own conclusions, no one's going to tell you, you know, you got a shorter lifespan or, you know, you're going. it's going to get worse. One doctor had the nerve to say, I'm going to look back on this in two years and think it was a nightmare. Au contraire. Mm-hmm. They had, and none of the doctors had cures. There, are, there is no cure. You treat, they treat the symptoms. That was the tip-off to me by, 
one of the doctors. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, I, I don't know what to do for you, but I can try to treat your symptoms. Drink water, that helps with the blood pressure and the fainting. You know, have more salt, that helps. But those aren't cures. <laughs> That's not some great pill you take, and all of a sudden, your myelin sheathing is now back on your nerves. Mm-hmm. There's no regeneration of myelin sheathing to speak about. Right. Now, when I look at, you know, my mother's a diabetic, so she has diabetic neuropathy, and she explains that as either being numb or a feeling of like pins and needles. Is that the same type of, of symptom that you have? Yeah, I'm either numb. when it, There's different levels of nerves. So, sure, if you stuck a knife into me, I would feel it penetrating. But when I just put my hands or try to pick up pills or something off of a counter, it's numbness that I feel. It's, it's like someone banged your finger and it's now t- tingling. Well, the whole body is like that. Mm-hmm. And it's a tug, and war, tug of war between, I think, the nerves and the muscles. And that's why you get exhausted. I mean, I can take naps all day long. I have malaise that I just don't feel like I can want to do something. I don't feel like it. You know, yeah, that's part of depression. All these symptoms of depression are dotted in there. But I think there's other components of depression, too, which they just blanket label everybody. Oh, you're depressed, put you on drugs. No, people with chronic pain can get depressed. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. No, absolutely not. It'd be different if I had this when I was 30 or 20 or I grew up with it. But I was 69 doing all sorts of things I love to do, traveling, you know, rowing, doing all things. I had three businesses, wrote a couple of books. I've had a full life. My kids, I'm very comfortable that they're great. Mm. I've done a lot. I don't have a bucket list. So now it costs me the way I look at it. I'm living for other people. I mean, I tried discussing this and nobody really wants to hear that you want, oh yeah, we're all gonna watch you kill yourself. But they don't know the suit, the shoe. They can't have empathy mm-hmm. with me because they're not in my shoes. You can say, oh gee, you can have some, maybe some sympathy or some a feeling that, gee, I feel for him, but I can't get empathy because hmm. they they they're not in my shoes. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, they're just, I don't want to use the word selfish, but it's the only word that I can think of is our family sometimes is selfish in wanting us to be there because they can't have the empathy because they don't know what's going on on the inside of us. It just comes down to the fact that there's no way for them to know or understand what's going on inside of us. Right. It's not like I have a cold. Oh, gee, I, you know, too bad you have a cold, take some aspirin or something, and you'll be fine in a couple of days. I present myself all the time with what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. What's my cure? Mm-hmm. I can't do a lot of things. And I need to be reminded every day of my inadequacies you know, and my failures and what I'm not capable of. I believe I'm of sound mind. I'm an engineer by education. And I look to think, look at things pragmatically. You know, if that highway's failing or that bridge is failing, got to fix it. Mm-hmm. Has got nothing to do with anybody's opinion or anything other than an objective opinion. That bridge needs fixing. Now, if they can't do that for me and it's only on my shoulders, why don't I have the right to determine how I live and when I live and die? Yeah. And so I assume you've spoke to a therapist about this. Um, 
probably your your family made you go see a therapist. So that's what would happen here at my house. Uh-huh. How did that conversation go with a therapist? Well, I was challenging to her because, and you know, when she was an, uh, an older lady who I think got it, she said, you know, do what you got to do if you want to. And naturally, you know, I don't want to do be violent about it. That's why it stops me. You know, I don't want them to discover me. It would hurt if I jumped off a bridge, wouldn't it? I don't want to do that. <laughs> so someone offered me the pills to do it in a nonviolent way, and I'm asleep in, in 10 minutes or half an hour, whatever it is, and just going off. I mean, I smoke pot at night to go to sleep because part of the illness is, you know, and, and the steroids that you take, they prevent you from sleeping. Because, you know, lack of sleep is one of the one of the most evident signs of a mental health issue, but your lack of sleep is being caused by a medicine that you're using to try to feel better. But at the end of the day, you know, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And so there just seems to be this end that is just closing in on you. I'm waiting. Yeah. And if you're like me, I don't like waiting, especially when I know what the outcome is going to be. Yeah. And my concern was in the very beginning, how bad is this going to get? Am I going to be one of those vegetables, one of those encephalitis uh, people who scream all day long and, oh, they can't do anything for them? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to come come down to that. I mean, if, if someone feels mercy enough, you know, knock me out, kill me. I don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't have any recriminations at this point because I haven't done something or I haven't told somebody something. Mm-hmm. You know, my kids love me. I love my kids and family. My wife might be pissed off because she's got that caregiver title now, but we figure it out. So have you have you attempted suicide or have you just had the the thought of that would be the best way to end this on my terms? Yeah, probably it was the it's the conclusion because nobody's going to do it for me. There aren't enough places that you can get permission to do it. And then. From what I understand, the reason why our laws are like that, that you can't commit suicide, is because there's a, in quotes, higher authority, which I don't believe in. Mm. Why shouldn't I have the right to live the way I want to live? I was 69 when I came down with this. I was fine. I was rowing in the water. You know, I was, I was running. I was playing tennis if I wanted. I did whatever, and I can go wherever I want. I can't do that now. Mm-hmm. It's tough going on a vacation. How do I walk? Yeah, and, and so getting into the the thought of self-assisted suicide, there are a lot of restrictions when it comes to that. And and I think it's probably has a lot to do with the general public not understanding where that person is coming from and all of their pain. Mm -hmm. And, and and so like with, with the States that do allow it, you have to have a psych evaluation one and two, you have to be within a certain period of time that you would decease anyway. That was a definite, what is it, like six, eight months, something of that nature. What about people with long-term illnesses? Mm-hmm. They get no rights? Yeah. You have to live by some religious code? So how does, how does your wife feel about your thoughts of, of suicide? I believe she really doesn't want to confront it because it's too hurtful to her. We're too close. We've spent 35 years together. 
So she'd rather not discuss it, and I think maybe she she almost denies it. She sees what I can do and what I can't do, but there's never a loss every day of her telling me, oh, you can do this. Can you take in the dishes to the to the sink? Can you make the bed, you know, make the bed? You can do that. Mm-hmm. People tell me you can do, the you can do's. You have no idea what I can do and how discomfort it is to me to try to do those things mm-hmm. and how it makes me feel that I can't do those things. So why am I performing for others if I don't want to do it anymore and I'm in chronic pain, which you don't have to be crazy to be in chronic pain. Yeah, It can make you crazy. And it's not like I was, you know, depressed for no reason. I have a re- I believe I have a reason I'm confronting my end. Yeah. And in what condition will I, or could I be in? So that's plenty of reason to make somebody depressed or anxious or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. Depression is very common amongst people who suffer from long-term pain. I mean, it's just, it's part of it. You hurt all the time. Why you don't have any reason to feel good. You hurt all the time. Uh, so it's, it's easy to, to slip into that, that depression. Now you said that your wife is, is the, you can do this, you can do that. Is it coming from a heart of she's encouraging you or is she in some way trying to convince herself that you're not as bad off as she would believe or want to believe? Probably a little of both. Mm. You know, she probably meets, she, she does mean well for me, obviously. She doesn't want ill to my, uh, to my condition, but she's, how do you also confront? Sure, I'll help you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'll put the plug in. Or take the plug out. Mm-hmm. At that point, we'll have a serious discussion. Yeah, and, and I just want to to note for our listeners that before we started recording, you needed to push a button on your computer, and you weren't able to do that. That your hands sometimes you can't, you know, feel. You can't. Uh, you said your hands were shaky at times, and you or you'll lose your your train of thought, have fog brain or brain fog. And so it's it, it truly is this invisible disease that does have some outward manifestations. Our bodies are really amazing. I mean, you have different systems and the dysautonomia affects a certain portion of that of each system. So it's like buckshot for symptoms and ailments. So you can have high blood pressure, low blood pressure, you know, foggy brain with neuropathy. You can have uh, numbness and you don't have to have all the components. So a lot of times they're chasing doctors for the really the wrong reason at the end of the day. Yeah. So they were having trouble diagnosing my illness because I had this component. I had that. I had this and I had that. That's part of the confusion because I clouded the whole problem of dysautonomia and neuropathy when they sent me it, when they told me I had, um, you know, the checking the heart, the checking the liver, the checking something else, but they weren't checking it all together. What, what they now call a disease, yeah. dysautonomia. It's kind of one of those things where the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. And there isn't this you know, this thought process of, okay, this is my primary care physician and he needs to be calling the shots and he needs to be looking at the entire picture instead of just shipping me to another doctor that's going to treat me in a clinic for a period of time and then ship me to somebody else. 
Um, we do see that a lot. We see that a lot within mental health uh, of therapists passing clients. And and one thing that you said when before we started recording was, uh, you know, it doesn't beseech us well to quote unquote cure our patients uh, because then we we lose money. And, uh, you know, my, my mother-in-law actually said that to me one time. She said, Brian, you have to be very careful not to get your patients well enough that they don't need you anymore. And uh, I thought, well, that's, that's kind of the whole point is to work myself out of a job uh, helping people. So with this, with this ideology of, of contemplating suicide, but doing it in a way that is honorable, and, and sensitive to your family. I would ask you the question, uh, and you may have already answered this, but what do you have to live for? That's the number one question. At this point in my life, it's not, again, it's not like I'm 20 years old and I've got my life before me or when I have a family and have kids. I've done it all that I'm satisfied. I don't have a bucket list. There's not something, oh, I have to run off and do because I heard some movie star talk about it. Mm-hmm. As, a, as a practical matter, I've had a productive and a good life. Mm-hmm. I did okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I got through it, of that journey, that 50-year journey. So, again, it's not like I have nothing to, to look back on. I'm okay because it's going to come anyway someday. Mm-hmm. So you could you could say definitively that if you were to die today, there would be no regrets. None at all. I just have I just hope I have all my paperwork in order, hmm. which now I don't feel like doing anymore. I say, fuck it, leave it to someone else. Yeah, and figure it out. Yeah. So I, I want to ask this question, but not in a way that would stimulate you to think or to consider even further. But what is keeping you from doing it now? Well. A, I don't want to do it violently, you know, and the family will find me someplace and then hate me for the wrong reasons. That stops me. I'm also not in excruciating pain. I have a different definition of my, it's, I call it discomfort. Mm-hmm. Like someone holding your, holding your wrist and squeezing tightly and 24-7, that's what you have. But are you in pain when somebody's doing that? No, it's discomfort, constricting and it inhibits me or prevents me from functioning in my real life and writing and stuff like that. It's not like I just feel depressed about something because I have a, you know, a, a chemical imbalance or something. I've got this because I have a condition of something that's chronic that doesn't have an out, a good outcome. Mm-hmm. I'm maybe a little scared because when I, because I'm not in that severe death mode, meaning I can tolerate it. If I can tolerate it, why not keep breathing? Mm-hmm. If I can't tolerate it, then I got to go to plan B or C or whatever. Yeah. So what do you do now that brings you joy? Hmm. Watching Netflix series, uh, old, you know, um, romance stuff or Viking stories. You know, I sit and I can watch and I can veg out. And if I meditate also, which is helpful to me, because it's like I'm in a turtle shell. You know, I can bounce against it. When I move, I bounce against the shell. But if I sit tight, I mean, relaxed and meditate, I can almost feel like 
there's no pain. Not quite. I know there's discomfort. All I got to do is just twinge a little muscle. Mm -hmm. I'll feel the discomfort. That'll remind me. So, and I, the more I do typing nowadays, I can't, you know, I'm redundant typing, although Microsoft has some programs for that. So you don't do redundant typing, but it's not the best. But anyway, so that's what probably stops me, I guess. I don't want to do it in violence. The family hates me and doesn't understand it. So I wrote a book about it. Maybe I can convey to some people how someone with chronic pain feels mm. that we're all not nuts. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there comes in that aspect of people who are in chronic pain are just putting on to get more medicine. And so, but once again, what people don't realize is with neuropathic pain, pain medicine doesn't really help with that. So there's this, there's this great divide of, of trying to understand what it is. And when you boil it all down, you can't know what it is because you've not, you've not lived it. You've not understood the pain, the frustration. I mean, I'm not an advocate of suicide by any means. Uh, I think that would go against my, my uh, do no harm ideology. Right. But in situations like yours, I could see where someone would want to venture into that avenue without any doubt. But, but I'm thankful uh, that you do have things that still bring you joy. I'm thankful that you don't hurt beyond what you can manage. And so there are some, there are some good things that, that we can still see. But I'm going to use the word scared, but that's the best word that I know of right now is that there is this, that you may be scared or have this anxiety that tomorrow you could wake up and it'd be a thousand times worse. Head in the bed. Yeah. I call it a head in the bed. Mm. Too late then to do anything about it. Yeah. So I want to plan in advance if I have to or whatever, accumulate my pills. And you know that's another thing. They've got these drug mills out there now, which is insulting the situation of people abusing medication. Because you can go to these psychiatrists who are licensed and everything. You go see them, and it's a 10-minute meeting. Mm -hmm. Oh, answer two questions. Nobody explores why are you suicidal? Why are you depressed? Oh, you need these pills? Take these pills. Mm -hmm. You know, Cymbalta? Oh, sure, take it, whatever you need. Yeah. And you go back to them frequently. They bill you. I don't know how, they, what, how their racket gets through, whether they bill 10 minutes or whether they bill an hour, and they're really making money. No, they, you, you're only allowed by insurance 10 minutes for a med check. Oh, really? Oh. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. That's almost like a loophole and a license, isn't it? Mm -hmm. for, the initial, for the initial new patient, I think you get 35 to 45 minutes, but for a med check, it's 10 minutes. Interesting. Mm -hmm. But who tells you, no, you don't have to come anymore. Where's the progress of taking the medication to make you better? Right. They've given a loophole to the industry. I can't believe that. Mm -hmm. That's bad news. Yeah. And even at that, you don't have to go, but every 90 days, you know, to where mental health drugs, a new one, it's going to take, you know, four to six weeks to even get into your blood system. Well, they've booked you for 90 days. Well, what happens in that 90 days when it's not working? Yeah, you could be dead. So, I mean, we could talk all day about how the the medical system is flawed and and in a major, major way. And and that leads to more depression as well. As I know here in Arkansas, if you wanted to see a therapist, you would most likely be on a wait list for six to eight months. 
to see a therapist. A mental therapist? Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. So if you are suicidal, you're probably not going to be unsuicidal, you know, in six to eight months. Wow. No clinics or anything that somebody could know hotlines? Or is that why they have the hotlines? That's why today? they have the hotlines. Yeah. But I mean, if you're suicidal, they'll put you in the hospital for 72 hours and then put you out when they think you're not going to do it. Or I've had patients that have said, I want to commit suicide, that they would not admit because they didn't say I'm going to commit suicide. And so there are all these little adjuncts to even down to the verbiage, which is absolutely ridiculous. But back to you and your story, I can't even imagine what you're dealing with and what you're going through. And as you know, somebody with, I have about 15 years experience of counseling. I don't even know what to say, you know, to <laughs> someone in your situation other than what are the things that make you happy and you, can you capitalize on those things to overcome the pain? And, and really what I'm hearing from you is no. When you say overcome the pain, do you mean distract me from it? Yes. I yes. can't, I would have to be cured to, I believe to overcome the pain. Right. There is no cure. And yes, I can do things to distract me with meditation or just think having love with the family mm -hmm. is really a major help. I can see people who might be all alone in an apartment or particularly the past couple of years with the pandemic, they were confined to their, you know, houses or living conditions and not even interacting with many people and maybe just having depression by itself, but not even provoked by a chronic illness or something else that goes into a different realm, mm -hmm. that kind of depression. Yeah. It's uh, it was quite a topic to investigate and try to connect the dots. I like connecting dots. Yeah. Well, Robert, I appreciate you sharing your story with us today, and um, we'll make sure to put the information about your book and in the description of this podcast so people can can find that uh, along with other resources for suicide prevention and, and uh, for this diagnosis. So I appreciate you taking your time today to share your story and um, a very difficult story, a very hard story to, to tell. Thank you. All right. Well, we will... Uh, I'll see you around. We're, I want to talk to you some more about this sometime. And uh, probably after I read your book, I'd like to have an, another conversation with you. No problem. Physician-assisted suicide is something that is very controversial these days. And it's only allowed in certain states. And the red tape that you have to get through to do it sometimes seems to be too much. But as I challenged Robert today... Find the things in life that you find joy. What are the things that you do to find joy? Now, I think of the uh, Justice League uh, movie where they're talking to Superman and, and they say, you were sent here for a reason. You will give the people of an earth an idea to strive toward. And here's the best part. And even if it takes you the rest of your life, you owe it to yourself to find out what that reason is. You see, if you're still alive, you're still breathing, there's a reason that you're here. And I would challenge you today, no matter how you feel, find that reason because you owe it to yourself to know. If you or someone you know is suffering from suicidal ideations, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. 
course, I'm Doc Brian. You can find all of my social media links at the bottom of my website at thedocbrian.com. T-H-E-D-O-C-B-R-I-A-N.com. Of course, you can leave us a message at 910-777-7239. You can call or text 910-777-7239. We would love to hear from you, and we will talk to you again next time. Have a great week. Goodbye.